Hello and welcome to the podcast. Boise State burst onto the national stage in football over 20 years ago and has made a mark very few non-Power 5 conferences or schools have ever made. From the famous blue turf in the stadium to three Fiesta Bowl victories, Boise State football put a regional state school in the national discussion, along with the Mountain West Conference's first mover status in creating its own television network, the Broncos became a national phenomenon that still resonates today. My guest today is former president of Boise State, Dr. Robert Kuster. His bio tells us that after he arrived in 2003, he led a transformation that turned Boise State into a metropolitan research university of distinction. There was an increase in the number of full-time and out-of-state out students, a focus on maintaining a vibrant undergraduate experience, and growth in graduate degrees offered. In 2016, Boise State was officially designated a Carnegie Doctoral Research University, a goal that he had since he arrived. In addition to leading the institution for 15 years, he also held the presidency at Eastern Kentucky University. Interestingly enough, before that, Bob also served in the Illinois House of Representatives and was Illinois' Lieutenant Governor from 1991 to 1998 bringing a very unique perspective to our conversation, especially since the NCAA's new president is the former two-term governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker. Now retired, Bob writes for the Idaho Statesman and has been a regular contributor to Boise's NPR station via the show, Reader's Corner. Bob shares very candid observations and reflections on where college athletics is today and how his thinking has evolved since joining the Broncos in 2003. And because he was a politician before he became a college president, he offers his insight on the NCAA's new president, Charlie Baker. Hey, Bob, welcome to the podcast. So glad you could join us. Thanks, Karen. It's great to be here. Great to be at Penn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you and I have talked a little bit offline, but you've now uh, retired from your second presidency at Boise State. Uh, you were at Boise State for 15 years. Prior to that, you were at Eastern Kentucky. Give the audience a sense of what it's like to go from those two different institutions and, and how they view athletics. Well, without question, the first one come to mind in the sense that I was completely new to university athletics. Uh, I had uh, come down to Kentucky from Illinois where I had been serving as Lieutenant Governor, where I had been in office for 18 years. Um, I was teaching all those years and I sometimes taught full-time, sometimes I taught uh, part-time, but um, I, I was never in an administration at any of these universities I taught. So one day they decided at Kentucky that they wanted someone who had public sector experience, somebody who could work with the legislature and the governor well, so I was hired. But what I quickly learned, as much as I thought I knew about the public sector and about governors and legislatures and how to squeeze more money out of the, out of the state for the university, the athletics enterprise was completely new to me. And frankly, I think the reason I'm bringing this up, not about me, but I think this is the point. This is the case with almost all first presidents. Where did they come from? Well, they probably came from the provost office or they came from the finance office or they came from, if they came from another president, that's another thing, but 
this is the first shot. Um, it takes some learning time to get up on just what this athletics enterprise is, how it's so different from the rest of the university, and and how to how to manage it. And uh, at Eastern Kentucky, I'd be the first to say that I was green as you can be. By the time I got to Boise State, I, I knew my way around the track. Uh, I, I had been through three years of a presidency where there were a number of challenges, just like there are any place else. And so by the time I got to Boise State, I felt like uh, I had done a lot of homework and I was much better prepared. The two schools in terms of the athletic program were in one sense vastly different. Mm -hmm. One was set in a rural a community in, in Kentucky, uh, down the road from the Big Blue, the University of Kentucky. And um, trying to get any kind of marketing or branding for a university in the shadow of the Big Blue was a significant challenge in central Kentucky. In the meantime, when I went to Boise State, Boise is growing as a community. It's a metropolitan area. And Boise was really, wasn't the only game in town, but it was the big game in town. And yeah. it was a lot easier uh, to, to work with athletic donors, uh, with athletic managers, coaches. Uh, they were all there figuring we were, we were on a route to something really cool. You know, within Division One, as you said, these are two very different institutions. And I, my guess is you were at Boise State just as the whole phenomena was taking off of Boise State football, uh, the blue turf, uh, the growth in the Mountain West. Uh, one of the things that I learned in my research was the Mountain West was the, was the first conference to actually have a television network, not the Big Ten. People think about the Big Ten being it, but it was the Mountain West who really led the way. Talk about those early years at uh, at Boise State and, and the excitement and the growth around football. Well, there's no question that uh, when I got there, there was something in the water that was working for that football program. Uh, I'll never forget as a brand new president at Boise State, but having the experience, uh, I get this letter from the football coach and uh, he he's telling me how great they are. And he wants to know if I understand the importance of football and the overall university mission. And at one point he said something about being rated. And I thought, rated? Who, who'd rate him? Uh, you know, here I am sitting in Kentucky, having been in Illinois and working the Midwest and the Big Ten is, is was really my thing. I mean, that's what I knew well was the Big Ten. And I thought, well, there sure isn't any way that that team could be ranked. And maybe there's another ranking. And I literally went online to see if I could find another ranking that would take care of Boise State because they couldn't possibly have been in the top 25. Well, they were in 2003. And they stayed there. And in the meantime, over my 15 years, won three Fiesta Bowls. But it didn't take me very long to get to that campus to understand that this university uh, adopting Bluefield before I got there was a great marketing uh, gig for sure. And it worked uh, so well in helping promote our brand and, and uh, the, the marketing advantage. And then of course, along the way, uh, it, it really helped the university. Uh, after we won the first Fiesta Bowl in 2007, that was the game where we beat Oklahoma by one point, 42-43. Uh, I mean, that was uh, the most 
most incredible football game I've ever watched with two overtimes uh, it took to decide the, the, fin the final score. Uh, we weren't supposed to win, obviously, and we did. And the first thing I remember telling the staff is find out the high schools every one of those players come from. I want to send our enrollment management people into those high schools. Wow. And what we did is we went into California. We were already in California from an athletic standpoint. We were all over California. You looked at most of our players that are coming from up and down the West Coast, many of whom weren't really selected by the big schools, so they wind up at Boise State, and then they prosper. And so we went in there and started recruiting from California, from Washington, from Oregon. And uh, today, I think half of the enrollment now, uh, I don't have the specific numbers anymore, but almost half of the enrollment, if not half the enrollment, is from out of state. Wow. And if you take a look at where they come from, uh, they're, they're heavily California. And so I think what it, and when, when I talk to parents who were coming in, I, I would go to these sessions where we would introduce the parents and the students to the school. I get a chance to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And oftentimes the moms and the dads would say in the, in the early days, well, we, we, we heard about you when we, we watched the Fiesta Bowl, you know, and, and, but the, and then as we were able to build on that, build on programming, new honors college, uh, more engineering PhDs, more science PhDs, all of a sudden parents were recognizing that we had the same academics that they could get in California, only we could do it more cheaply. And, um, and we could do it in a, in a, in a beautiful college setting. When you say more cheaply, so these are out-of-state students who are coming in, so that your t tuition was still less than in-state California tuition? Yeah, and the reason is that uh, we were part of a, of a program, a Western program of states who participated collectively to reduce out-of-state tuition. Got so it. They paid out-of-state tuition, but it, re it was reduced in such a way that many parents would tell me it was a wash as to whether or not uh, their, their students went to Cal State system or the UCAL system. And the UCAL system may have been, was probably more expensive. And I don't know exactly about school to school, how that would have worked. Right, but right. generally speaking, California parents were saying, shoot, it's a wash, or in some cases, even an advantage. Yeah, to Idaho. yeah that's interesting. Um, just give us a sense. What was your, you know, you're kind of riding this wave of excitement around football and being able to leverage football uh, in your enrollment management. And, and did you get the sense that the campus was sort of riding the wave with you or were there people who were just like, you know, this isn't going to last? Well, you know, today, I don't know how it is. And, and if, if I read some of uh, the news uh, carefully, I can certainly see that there's plenty of campuses that are uh, concerned about the growth in athletics. But I have to say, as a university that was trying to take off and that needed a powerful engine to do so, um, I, would, I would say in my general annual messages to the university, uh, we were known, by the way, for our trick plays, all right? We've had a couple of coaches that were always pulling trick plays. It would infuriate the opposition. Some of them actually thought that it was uncouth. <laughs> there was something <laughs> unfootball about a, a trick play, you know, uh, whatever it might be. And it won the Fiesta Bowl for us in 2007, for sure. 
And I would always say, you know, that's called innovation. And if we can innovate on the football field, right. we can innovate in the classroom. We can innovate across the campus. We can innovate everywhere. Not too many years later, we created a college of innovation and design. And we hired the director of Harvard's innovation lab to come and run it. And it, it, my point is that we use the football program and its ingenuity and its innov innovation. We used it to propel the rest of the university. And to answer specifically your question about, well, in the meantime, where were the faculty and students? They were all over this. Even, huh. And really, when I got there, I was surprised to learn that um, I couldn't find any group of faculty that wanted to beef about the football program or academics. I suppose when the coach's salary came out every year, they'd roll their eyes. Uh, but I mean, it, it, everybody was all in in those days. And I'm, and I'm not really so sure it's any different now. Uh, I don't know anything about how COVID affected Boise State uh, in terms of this issue of, of how, do, how do faculty feel compared to the way the University of Arizona faculty felt when they got furloughed, but then the university dumped all kinds of, what, $53 million into the athletic budget in 2021. Uh, I'm sure we didn't do that at Boise State, but I don't know those specifics. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. So so let's see. You've been um, you retired from the presidency in 2018. So a lot has happened in the last four and a half to five years around college athletics. One thing that struck me in in your initial comment was that you were a lieutenant governor, uh, and 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 the NCAA has just named a former governor as its new president, uh, Charlie Baker, who was the two-time very popular Republican governor in Massachusetts. So you bring a unique perspective to what his challenges are going to be. Can you give us a sense of what it's like you talked about coming from the, the government sector into higher education? What's his um, learning curve gonna be? Well, it, it, it'll be steep, I suppose, but frankly, it's about time. time. Uh, I, I wish I had confidence in university presidents stepping into the role of NCAA president. Um, frankly, I did when, when Miles Brand was the president years ago. I had great respect for Miles Brand. In fact, I could tell a little story about Brand calling us all together one year in 2005 uh, and asking us uh, if we had a compliance department director reporting directly to the president's office. And not many of us, including me, could raise our hands. Right. And he said, you need to go back to your campus and do that, which, of course, I did. Yeah. But it showed to me that here's a guy with a philosophy PhD who was president at Indiana. Of course, he was best known for firing Bobby Knight. That's why <laughs> they gave him the job, I think. Right. <laughs> he had a lot of guts. Right. Uh, I'm not so sure about the Massachusetts governor. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I happen to like his politics, but I don't know. You know, uh, he's going to want to get along to go along or go along to get along, I should say. And he's going to be sitting there looking at a, a group of presidents who, who frankly, have, have, have they've been drinking the Kool-Aid for years. And um, they, they would see they, they would see very little way, I think, to, to turn things around. And of course, the way I would turn things around are so radical that I don't think anybody wants to hear about it these days. But my point is that uh, I think uh, 
he'll, he'll not only have a learning curve in, in terms of learning what's going on, but he'll find it very, very difficult to change because these presidents are going to be sitting there yeah. watching their own empires, yeah. carefully guarding their own empires, and anything that looks in any way like it's going to take $1 away from their athletic program or their university, uh, they're going to beef about it. And uh, I think that's going to be his, his major challenge. It, first of all, I'd give the guy at least a year to get to know the territory. And, and then he's going to need a few years to get things done. Having worked in or alongside a governor's office, what influence do you think a governor can have on, on Congress? Because that seems to be one of his... Uh, directives from the membership. Go to Congress, make us some friends, and possibly help us get some legislation that'll bail us out of name, image, and likeness issues, state to state, maybe antitrust issues. The Supreme Court really took down the NCAA uh, in 2021 with the way they were structuring their educational benefits for athletes. Do, can a, somebody who's been a governor have that kind of influence on a federal legislation leg, legislator? Again, he's certainly way more moderate than a lot of the Republicans in, yeah, in yeah. the House or the Senate. But on the other hand, he he wears the right cloth. He's got he's got the blue on, and for that or the for the red on, I should say. And for that reason, um, I, I think you know they'll listen to him anyway. Uh, and I'm hoping that he'll be able to get past some of the intransigence uh, in the in the system. That, and that that's where his problem is going to arise is is really the intransigence in, in, in the in the system. Having been a president for almost 20 years, what do you think are the issues around the, the holdups and having a student athlete become an employee? What do you think that that issue is that presidents seem to repeat over and over and over again? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was one early on that um regularly discussed publicly the issue of um, of student athletes and uh, always argued that they were amateurs and they were students first and that this whole business of back in the day I'm not talking about the last five or right. ten years even but in my early years as a president um, those who were really calling for students for example to be compensated for their likeness for just right. one. I mean, they were voices in the wilderness. And the rest of us were all saying, ah, you know, that's that's nonsense. That doesn't work. They're student athletes. That's why we put student before athlete and hyphenated. Uh, now, having said that, over the years, what I noticed, and I participated in this, so I'm guilty as charged, coaches' salaries just went berserk, way out of line. Uh, with anyone else's salary in the state. Oftentimes, the football coach is the highest paid state employee. If it's a public, if it's a public university, obviously, if it's private, it's a different story. Then he'll make even more money, as a matter of fact, in the, public, in the private sector. Um, so, so I gradually started changing my views on this and realizing that we can't justify a coach's salary when it's based on the success of these young men and women in some cases mm -hmm. who are doing so well on a field or are on a court and we should do something about that. So uh, by the time I left the presidency, I had pretty much 
given up on the argument uh, that we should be focusing on student instead of athlete. And I figured if the coaches can make that much money and we can't get an antitrust provision that would allow us to deal with that, then we have to deal with the students and, and we, we need to, to uh, reimburse them for their success. Yeah, so the obviously names, image, and likeness has uh, has taken the country by storm uh, since July of 2021, and you know you've got all kinds of um, uh, rumors running around about this quarterback got offered 13 million, and that quarterback got a million and a Bentley, and you know all all these kinds of ideas. The issue seems to be, and I wonder what you think about this. The Baylor president, Linda Livingstone was uh, at the NCAA convention this week talking about wanting the the schools to be able to have the athletes report to them the kinds of NIL deals that they're striking. So that whether volleyball players getting a, a deal with Popeye's chicken or the football players getting a deal with a media company, the school knows all that kind of information. As a president, how do you view that? Is that, is that, too intrusive into the athletes, you know, private lives or because they are representing Boise State or another institution, maybe the school should have that kind of understanding. Yeah, I would, I would agree with what you just said, the latter, that uh, this student still is a student at whatever university. And uh, as a result of that, I think a university has to keep track, has to have at its disposal all of the information behind this student's activities on or off the field. And especially since his remuneration is based on what he's doing as a student athlete for the university, then I'd say, well, of course, why could, why would this even be difficult for anybody to figure out? I mean, it, it does bring up for me though, uh, another solution, which is as impractical as the day is long and I won't spend a lot of time on it, but we do have university foundations that are 501c3s and relatively independent of the university. Uh, in the larger universities, they are, let's just talk about the public side for a minute. They are, are actually governed by their own board and mm -hmm. their own CEO. And uh, in the case of some of them, I know, those that CEO does not take orders from the president of the university and the president of the university doesn't necessarily take orders from the CEO. Yet, it is called the Oregon State Foundation hmm. as opposed to anything else, all right? Well, um, if you really wanted to uh, put the innovation cap on, you could think about uh, why couldn't you do that with athletics? Why couldn't you move athletics into a separate foundation whereby, sure, it still has a, a f affiliation, maybe a name only, but an affiliation with the university. But when it comes to these issues of uh, rewarding student athletes, when it comes to the size of coaches' salaries, uh, no longer will universities be subsidizing those activities. And, hmm. and of course, the argument that's always given is it's all about the branding. That's the way I justified my increases in athletic spending over the years I was a president. It's all about the branding. That's true, but there has to be a point, and I think the University of Arizona reached it, where the, the, the academic mission of the university must be paramount here. Yeah. And it's not paramount when a president 
takes 53 million and moves it into an athletic program in a tough year while at the same time furloughing his faculty and staff and they're suffering uh, salaries and, and wages. That makes no sense. And I think that's where we are right now. I mean, I, I think the, the world has changed dramatically since I became a president and even in some ways since I left presidency. And COVID said something to do with that, but this image and likeness issue is another factor. And I think we're getting to the point where someday somebody in authority, either presidents or Congress or somebody, ought to say, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. Uh, the, the NCA and individual university foundations should just take over uh, sports in, <laughs> in uh, the university and let universities get back to their sole mission of academics. And uh, again, I know that would be controversial as all get out. And I would never, uh, you know, I used to say that the most courageous presidents in the world were the ones that just retired and were writing their books about everything. <laughs> they were right. 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 And, and so here I am. Yep. I, I never I never spoke like this. I mean, I did speak like this during my presidency privately, but I never gave a major speech on how we should take the whole Boise State right. program and right. remove it from the university. Uh, but I, I, I think we're at a point where I'm surprised somebody in Congress hasn't brought it up and figured out that, that this isn't really working anymore. You know, there are at least two uh, uh, FBS uh, programs, this Georgia Tech and the University of Florida, that have foundations, that their athletic department is run out of a foundation. It's separate. And I have wondered that same thing. Well, what, what, makes, what made them choose to do that? And if it, it's a, such a good idea, why did more people take advantage of it? Do you have any idea what, what the thought process is there? Well, boy, that's a tough one. It's multiple choice, I think. And I yeah. don't know which one to answer because on the one hand, I could definitely see some athletic departments uh, suffering under the control of the university and saying to its boosters, let's get out of this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sick and tired of reporting to the president every week on what we did wrong and having to talk about the infractions that went into the NCA last week. Uh, so they, they could be doing it just, just to escape the oversight to some extent. There's still going to be oversight, of course. Um, I don't know what other motives. I mean, I suppose also they could be looking at this issue of whether or not they could be as successful when they're having to share funding with the university and they feel like they would have more legal independence, uh, more financial independence, over on the foundation side. So one of the two, uh, one you you know hope they're not thinking uh, because control is still gonna be important you know, in these issues when you're dealing with students especially, but uh, that's the way I see it. Well, let's, let's imagine a world going forth and it's not that hard to imagine that we have the same chaos and disruption in athletics for the next couple of years because there is a true sense that if we don't get what we need from Congress, we as is in college athletics in the next eight to 10 months, the 2024 election is going to come up and nothing's going to get done in that year. So we could be looking at um, this kind of uh, unsettledness for two or years or more. What's that going to mean for conferences that like the one that Boise State is in, Mountain West, which I see is constantly improving its position 
but it feels like there's nothing it can do to keep up with the Big Ten or the SEC. So what do you think happens if we end up status quo for the next few years? Well, I, I think what will happen from the, and I'm going to look at it from the standpoint of the university presidency yeah. and the conference. Um, the conference, let's take the Mountain West, will continue doing the same thing. It will try to work with its existing members and especially uh, pay particular attention to those that might be susceptible to getting robbed, to getting moved over to the Pac-12. With UCLA and USC moving out, the rumors are all over the place about Boise State and San Diego State, for example, right. uh, jumping over to uh, the, the, the Pac-12. Um, and that, frankly, I would think makes a lot of sense for those two schools. Even if that were to happen, there's still another uh, few schools out there, I know from sitting in these conferences, that are also watching to see if anybody leaves the Mountain West. Because the Mountain West is a pretty good conference. Yeah. So, boy, you know, they jump at a chance to move into the Mountain West. Now, if you move over to the eastern end of the state, you've got American University. And American, I mean, American, the American Conference. And Amer the American Conference is another one that has been very successful. Uh, their conference uh, head, I think, is one of the best in the nation. Yeah. And there's just no question in my mind that uh, there are people standing in line waiting for those folks, if anybody ever bolts and goes somewhere else. I don't think there's as much, and I'm rusty on this, but I don't think there's as much opportunity for movement over there as there is in the West because of what UCLA and USC is uh, threatening to do. Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, it looks like it's going to happen too. Yeah, I keep hearing Boise State and San Diego State as possible additions to the Pac-12, which then again puts a president, imagine you're back in that chair, imagining, okay, our, our competitors are now Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Stanford, Cal, I mean, how do you position an institution when that, if, if that comes to, to, to fruition? Well, that's, that's a major challenge. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Karen. Um, the jump in budget size yeah. for a Boise State or a San Diego State from the Mountain West to the Pac-12 or any other Power Five conference would be considerable. Yeah. And believe me, I worried about that. I, over the years, I probably I, I visited the Pac-12 headquarters one year to meet with the the, the conference uh, commissioner uh, to make my case for why we, he should take us. This right. is long before anybody knew any uh, USC and and uh, and UCLA were leaving. I was thinking about making it the Pac-14. But anyway, uh, you know, I gave them all the good reasons why we should do it. And then I'd go home thinking, oh my God, if we ever did that, the money I'd have to fork out for <laughs> coaches' salaries. And that, it's not just about the salaries. These these coaches never have enough assistants. Yeah. I swear to God, they add assistants every year they're in the job. And you, you walk into you know the athletic department, it's like, who's that guy? Well, we hired him last week. He's our new assistant <laughs> coach for morals. You know, I mean, they got one for just about every damn thing. That's right. And so, you know, I mean, it, it just, it, it's crazy. And it would not do nothing. Whoever goes into that conference, if they were to expand, yeah. it's just going to ratchet up uh, the, the cost of doing business for those schools. Yeah. Having said that, by the way, uh, let's take the Pac-12 again. If, it, if it's now the Pac-10, those two schools are gone. 
those presidents also look selfishly at the way this all works out. When you split the end of season earnings by 10 <laughs> instead of 12, right. uh, the existing presidents are going to make more money. And I actually had one of the presidents over the years who I got close enough to that he would be honest with me. He said, we, we don't want to split the pot. <laughs> no, we, we, don't, we don't want to increase. We like it just the way it is. So yeah. the Pac-12 may go back to being the Pac-10 and they will live happily ever after. They won't be, they won't have the revenue that these other power five conferences are getting because apparently that's not worked out for them. I think they're in the middle of a media agreement right now, but um, they haven't done haven't done so well on that score. Bob, this, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate your insight. Let me leave you with this last question. Looking back on your early years at Eastern Kentucky and then your, your tenure at Boise State, can you give our listeners a sense of what you wish you had known when you first sat in the chair at the president's office about athletics? Yeah. Well, I think at the very beginning, uh, it, it's, it's easy. In fact, it probably applies to both institutions. I wish I had understood the importance of compliance and where it is situated in the organization chart at any university. Um, it was Miles Brand getting back to that meeting in 2005 that got my attention. But later after that, I would actually have to uh, fire an athletic director who had been with us for 20 years for five major offenses and that caused us to appear before the NCAA uh, for a 13 hour accounting. Uh, it was without a doubt the most brutal moment of my presidency. Uh, the football coach was there. He's told me since it was his most brutal mm -hmm. moment and it was all caused because we didn't have enough compliance officers. It was caused because they weren't doing their jobs as they were defined by the NCAA. Uh, we made all those corrections, but there is no question. When I wrote when I wrote my chapter in this handbook for a new presidents, uh, I wrote it on athletics. I hammered this issue with new presidents. Don't let your athletic director tell you that they've got compliance under control. All you need to do is meet with the athletic director. I met with the compliance director every two weeks mm -hmm. after that NCAA mess in 2009 or 10, whatever it was. And from that moment on, I always knew what the, 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 the infractions were, how serious they were, who was accountable for them. And uh, that's the only way a university is going to stay out of trouble because the bottom line now, and this is, and Miles Brand is the guy that did this until Miles Brand became NCAA president, Presidents were, weren't viewed as being ultimately responsible for athletics. Right. Today, there is no question in anybody's mind, whether it's the media, whether it's the Congress, whether it's, it's the, the universities themselves and the NCAA, it's the president who sits there in that 13-hour meeting and all the questions are pointed to him and then later they'll get to the coaches. But... Um, it, it'll wake you up as a president and make you understand the importance of university compliance. Great advice. Really great advice, Bob. This has been a tremendous conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out to share with my students and my, and my colleagues around the country about the important role that the president plays in all of these things that we talked about today. You're welcome. Nice to be with you, Karen.